The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that at the point of faith or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, every, every person that does so is saved. Sin is no longer an issue in terms of eternal salvation. Our salvation is secure for all eternity. Nevertheless, we continue to sin. We still have a sin nature. And when we sin, it breaks fellowship with God. It grieves the Holy Spirit and quenches His sanctifying or spiritual growth ministry in our lives. Therefore, it's necessary for us to recover from that sin and the procedure is a grace procedure. And it's based on 1 John 1, 9 that we simply confess or admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. And at that instant, we are forgiven, cleansed from all unrighteousness. That includes those sins we didn't know were sins or we forgot about. We're cleansed, we're stored to fellowship. The sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit uh, continues and our progress in the spiritual life is maintained. When we study the Word of God, it is under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. He is the one who helps us to understand what is being taught. He is the one who stores the doctrine, the teaching in our souls, and He's the one who brings it to mind so that we can apply it when the times are, are, are correct, when it's necessary. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the Word. Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who has loved us from eternity past, and from eternity past you provided a plan, a perfect plan, a plan whereby we could recover from sin, that we could be saved through the 
provision of a perfect sacrifice to our Lord Jesus Christ and that you provided a spiritual life for us and the you provided your word for us. You have revealed yourself to us and you have given us all of the information we need to live our life in a way that honors and glorifies you. Father, the scriptures are our guide. They are our path. Scripture says that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it is in your light that we see light. So, Father, we pray now as we study your word this morning that we might uh, be willing to submit to the teaching of your word, that the God, the Holy Spirit, would challenge each of us with what the, uh, what the scriptures teach, that we might make these principles a priority in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Two announcements I forgot to make. Number one, we're now starting to provide DVDs. Now, this is in-house for the time being. And for those who are listening by way of tape, that means that uh, in November and December of this year, we're going to make this uh, pretty much an in-house ministry so that our team of volunteers are going to be able to work out all the kinks and figure out how to... uh, how to fill the orders and make sure that they're not overwhelmed. Then probably uh, our target is at the first of the year we will start uh, producing these and putting it out on the Internet so people can order uh, DVDs at that point. Uh, For those of you who are here, we have order blanks on the table out in the foyer so you can order DVDs if you wish. Also, there will be a Christmas party here at the church on Saturday, December the 3rd at 2 p.m. We'll put up a tree and have a good old-fashioned tree trimming party, focus on the kids, bring the kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids, and if you've got great-great-grandkids, bring those two. And uh, we will do sing some Christmas carols and then have a telling of the Christmas story. So we will focus on the birth of our Savior that day, Saturday, December the 3rd. Last week... We continued into a new stage, a new section of our basic series. We've gone through basics related to God, related to salvation, related to man in the first part of this series, which I called Foundation for Life. In this part of the series, we're calling it Foundation for Living. We covered the foundational skills, the foundational spiritual skills laid out in the Scripture that every believer must master in order to advance spiritually. And that was confession of sin, which we've mentioned briefly already this morning, uh, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, the faith rest real, mixing faith with the promises, principles, and procedures in the Word of God, grace orientation, learning to orient our thinking to the grace of God so that it affects how we relate to uh, others. A doctrinal orientation where we make the Word of God the priority in our life. Those are the foundational spiritual skills. Then on top of that, we have certain responsibilities and duties. We have priestly duties. We are all priests, First Peter 2.5. We read, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is foundational. We are a holy priesthood. This is a training session. And for those of you who've been here on Thursday night in our Hebrew study, and you know that we are being prepared today for a future ministry 
with our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns at the second coming and he reigns during the millennial kingdom. Now, during the millennial kingdom, we return with him. We're in resurrection body and we become that cadre that rules and reigns with him. We are the administrative team and for the first time in many of your lives, you're going to use bureaucracy in a positive sense because we will be ruling as kings and priests. And so our training for that is part of our priesthood today. And there's two basic elements to our priestly ministry that we're developing in terms of this basic series. And the first has to do with prayer, and the second has to do with uh, Bible study. Now, that is a further development on what I talked about a couple of weeks ago on doctrinal orientation. But when we go back to look at the Old Testament and the role of the priest in the Old Testament, a priest did a number of different things. He was responsible for the teaching, communication, the copying, and the preservation of the Word of God. So that is vital. That's where we'll go in a couple of weeks. He was also the one who operated on behalf or as a representative of the people. Uh, each individual believer in the Old Testament couldn't come before God individually. In the, there had to be a, a representative. He came through a priest. That priest was the intermediary or the mediator between God and man. Now, in the church age, the Old Testament priesthoods, and we looked at the royal priesthood of Melchizedek, the Levitical priesthood, uh, the patriarchal priesthood, these are all have been set aside now so that in the church age, every believer is a priest. Each individual has a right to go directly to God, and this is part of our priesthood. Jesus Christ is our high priest seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is the one who continuously intercedes for us. And as a result of understanding his priesthood, in Hebrews 4.16 we read, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A foundational promise of prayer for each of us that we have direct access to the throne of God, but when we come, we have confidence. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. And when we look at some of the prayers that we have in the Scripture, both uh, some in the Old Testament, but, but especially some in the New Testament, we recognize that, that there is a way to come before the throne of God with confidence and with boldness. We have direct access right into the presence of God every time that we pray. But we have to understand what prayer is, and in some ways we have to understand what prayer isn't. So part of what I'll do today and next week is uh, we'll look a little bit at some of the uh, myths and misconceptions about prayer because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of funny teaching that goes on about prayer. In fact, the first time I really ran into this, this is, sounds kind of absurd to some of you, but I was teaching my first semester at what used to be Houston Bible Institute. Now it's the College of Biblical Studies. This was some uh, 20 years ago. And I had, uh, was first night, first class I taught, and I came out of class, and there was this lady in the class who came out during the break, and she said, well, I'm having a hard time understanding some of the things that you're saying. God, to me, is like a Coke machine. 
You put in a co- your coins and you press a button and out get you, and you get what you want. <sighs> I had never heard anything like that before. She had never heard anything like what I was teaching before, and that was the last time I saw her in class. She apparently uh, just didn't understand what grace in the Scripture was all about. But there are so many misconceptions in what I call just popular Christianity today. And it's not just today. There's always been sort of a popular uh, or pop Christianity, pop religion view in any culture at any time down through history there are ideas that just sort of get out there and people pick them up and you hear things, you know, trite little cliches like cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, things like that that you hear, things will, uh, well, you know, everything will work out, just believe. Believe what? You know, these little sayings you hear from people that aren't really grounded in Scripture, but they kind of sound like they they could be biblical and there sometimes there's a grain of truth in there, but but they're wrapped up in in some error. So we have to separate what is true about prayer from what is false about prayer. And, of course, the only authority for us in understanding prayer is the Word of God. So before we get too far along, let's uh, get a definition. And I did not create a slide on this, unfortunately. But let's get a definition of prayer. And then we will, we will work off of this. This definition is developed from looking at a number of passages in Scripture. First of all, let's just go through it. It's a lengthy definition. I'll go over it a couple of times for you. Prayer is a grace provision. It is the grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. Okay, let's just go over that and break it down phrase by phrase. Prayer is a grace provision. This is based on grace. To understand prayer, you have to understand grace. What is grace? Grace means that it is an undeserved privilege. We don't do anything to deserve the right to go before God as fallen sinful creatures. God has given us this freedom, this privilege of direct access to Him. So it is a grace provision of the royal priesthood. And that is what every believer is. We've seen that back in our passage in 1 Peter 2.5. We are a holy priesthood. You go down to 1 Peter 2.9. We find out it, we're part of the royal family of God. So it is a royal priesthood. We are priests under the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's his priesthood? His priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, who was a royal priest. So this is a grace provision of the royal priesthood. That's who we are. You may not feel like royalty. You may not think much of aristocracy, but that's who we are as church-age believers. There's no believer in all of history that has the privilege and has all of the blessings and all of the rights that you and I have as church-age believers. There will ne- there's never will be another dispensation where the everyday ordinary believer has all of the rights and privileges that you and I have. We are royal aristocracy, so prayer is that grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer... That's us, has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. That never happened before in history. 
It was always through an intermediate priesthood. But today we have a mediator. We have a mediator. And in uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 we read that there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. You don't go through a human priesthood. That was That ended with the death of Christ on the cross. Christ's death on the cross, according to Romans 10, was the end of the law. It ended the Old Testament priesthood, which was a Levitical priesthood. So now what we have is that every believer is a priest. This, of course, was a foundational doctrine that was recovered in what is called the Protestant Reformation. So there is no set ecclesiastical priesthood. We're all, we are all priests, royal priests, so we all have access and privilege to communicate directly with God. Your prayers and your access to God are no uh, worse, no less than a pastor or anyone else. Every believer has that direct access. So let me go over that first part of the definition again. Prayer is that grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. Furthermore, the purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, express adoration and praise to God, to give thanks, to intercede for others, and to convey our personal needs, petitions, and to conduct intimate conversations with God. Now, I said that fast, but that's the second part of the definition. The purpose of the communication. Why do we go to God in prayer? Well, first of all, it's communication. It is talking with God. It, it, it's part of a relationship. A Christianity isn't a ritual that you just go through a series of rituals are rights. You have a relationship with God on the basis of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So we are adopted into his royal family. So we have this privilege to communicate. And the purpose of that communication is, first of all, to acknowledge our sin. We, as we'll see in our study, we have to acknowledge our sin in order to have access. There's this whole principle that we find in the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that to come into the presence of God, there has to be a cleansing from sin because of God's righteousness and His justice. So the purpose is, first of all, to acknowledge our sins. Second, to express adoration and praise to God. That is a vital part of prayer. Each of these can be a prayer in and of themselves. So our prayer can include all of these. And we'll talk about this as we go through our study and talk about the procedures for prayer. We are to we present our adoration and praise to God, focusing on His character, His attributes, His actions in history, His actions and provision in our in our lives. We're to give thanks. It's an expression of gratitude. Gratitude is related to our grace orientation. It's an expression of our humility. When we come before God, we recognize that He is everything. His plan is the most important thing, and our plans, our desires, our hopes, and our dreams are, are merely secondary to His plans and purposes. We're to intercede for others. We're to pray for one another. This is part of the reciprocal responsibilities that are part of our ambassadorship, which we'll get into in a few weeks. We have reciprocal responsibilities as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to pray for one another. We're to admonish one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to teach one another. 
All of these are part of those uh, reciprocal responsibilities that are built on the fact that within the body of Christ, there is relationship between believers. It's not just a relationship to God, but because we're all part of the body of Christ, there is this uh, interconnectedness. We are members of one another, Paul says in Romans chapter 12 when he talks about spiritual gifts. It's not just a bunch of isolated believers who are out there doing their own thing totally apart from any relationship to any other believer. And too often people get that idea and they're just like a whole bunch of lone rangers out there without any connection to anybody else. But that's not the picture that we have of the body of Christ in the Scripture. So we're to intercede for others. We're to pray for others. We're also to convey our own personal needs, to talk to God about what's going on in our life. A tremendous model for this is to read through the Psalms. And as believers, that's one thing that you should do on a regular basis is read through the Psalms. You should be reading through all the Scriptures. But when you read through the Psalms, often you come. many of the Psalms are prayers that were set to poetry and set to music and became part of the hymn book for the nation Israel and their worship in the, uh, in, the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And when you read some of those prayers, especially some of the Psalms where David is lamenting the adversity in his life, and that's the technical term by which those Psalms are known as lament Psalms. And as David is lamenting his condition, he's just, sometimes he's just yelling at God. And sometimes folks just don't think they can get, get upset and express how they really feel about things. They say, well, isn't that sacrilegious? Well, let's go to the Psalms. And David is just saying, like, Lord, how in the world can all this bad stuff be happening to me? And this guy next door who's about as pagan and lost and unrighteous as he can possibly be, nothing bad ever happens to him. And everybody's against me. And every time I turn around, something bad's happening. How can you be just and do this? He, he expresses himself... Honestly, and as he works through the situation, he goes from expressing his frustration or his anger or, or the, dealing with the situation in life, whatever it may be, and then he begins to focus on the character of God. And by the end of the psalm, the doctrine shifts, and, he, and God is teaching him through that process, and he ends up giving thanks and praising to God. But so many people are just afraid to, uh, when they get upset and they're going through some really tough times in life, to be honest with God about how they feel. And your feelings are real. The emotions are real. You don't want to be emotional and make decisions from the basis of emotion. But we have to be honest with God in the process. So we uh, express our personal needs, our petitions, meaning we are uh, asking God for certain things in our life and hopefully... You will learn as we go through studies in prayer later on that these petitions are rooted and grounded in what the Bible teaches. There's a many, many prayers in Scripture. And one of the things that I have wanted to do for a long time and may not get to for a long time, but is to go through the prayers of the Bible in order to extract basic principles of how to pray. Because there's, there's a tremendous range and variety in prayers in the Scripture. And one thing that impressed me years ago when I went through prayers is, for example, in Acts chapter... I think it's in Acts chapter 4. I'm just... Uh, I may be off, but it's when uh, Peter... 
uh, has been arrested, or no, Peter and John have been arrested, and they're being interviewed by the by the Sadducees, and so uh, the church comes together and they're praying for them. And if you look at how they pray, they're quoting Old Testament scriptures, but it shows that they're, they've gone back into the Psalms and they have studied two or three different Psalms and they have structured their prayer like a tight legal argument to God. Many of the Psalms are that way as well, where the psalmist goes back and looks at things that God has said and promised in the past and he structures a tight legal argument to argue with God like a lawyer and say, okay, God, but you've done this, you said this, you've done this. This is the situation. This is what's at stake in terms of your character, your reputation. Now, on the basis of these things, I petition you to act in this manner to be consistent with what you've said already. And that shows a tremendous understanding of Scripture. These are not just extemporaneous off-the-cuff, random prayers, they show a tremendous amount of study and structure in the prayer. So we present petitions before God, and then we have intimate conversations with God. We just talk to Him. Scripture says that we are to talk to Him as if He is, and the word that is used is Abba, which is a close, intimate term like Daddy. It's not a more formal term such as father, it is daddy. It is that intimate relationship that a child has uh, with his father to just go to him and just talk with God about everything in your life. And one of the myths that I hear people say is, oh, well, you know, I just didn't want to bother God with that. Well, what do you mean you don't want to bother God with that? God is omniscient and he's omnipotent. You can't overload him. I mean, he doesn't just have a, you know whatever it would be, a gig of memory. He has an infinite memory. So no matter how minute the details may be in your life or no matter how insignificant it may seem to you, and you say, well, you know, I just don't want to bother God with that, that in and of itself reflects a very, that you have a view of God that is very small. God wants to be a part of everything in our life, and so we're uh, we are told to come before Him and to bring all these things before Him, and in the process of praying and thinking through the Scriptures, in relation to the details of our life, God the Holy Spirit is working and often gives us a divine viewpoint perspective on what's going on while we are praying for these things. So this is our definition for prayer. Prayer is the grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. The purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, to express adoration and praise to God, to give thanks, to intercede for others, to convey our personal needs, petitions, and to conduct intimate conversations with God. Now, those are different components of prayers we'll see as we develop this study. We won't get to those t until next Sunday. But each of those can be part of one prayer where we go through all of those at the same time. Or any individual part of that can be a prayer in and of itself. There can be prayers of confession, such as Psalm 51 is a confession prayer. It can be a prayer of praise. It can be a prayer just of giving thanks. It can be a prayer of just uh, intercession for others. Any one of these can be a prayer in itself. It can be long. It can be short. 
it can be just bullet prayers while you're driving down the down the freeway and uh, are, are times at work and there's examples in the scripture many times where you have uh, something happened. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in, in Genesis where the faithful servant of Abraham is sent by Abraham to find a wife for Isaac. And when he is coming to the well there in Padan Aram and he is, he's not sure who's going to show up or how to really spot uh, the woman that God has in mind for Isaac or how to identify the right one, he prays and he sets forth certain conditions. He says, this is what I'm looking for. And as soon as he comes and he, uh, Rebecca comes to the well and she responds so graciously to give him water and then to feed the camels, it says he, he bowed his head and worshipped. What he was doing was he was giving thanks. It wasn't a long-term thing. It wasn't that he spent 30 minutes doing it, but he immediately stopped and gave thanks to God in the midst of the flow of events in that chapter. So prayers can be short or they, they can be long. Now, as I developed this, I, at first I wanted to do this in, in an hour, and I thought, no, I'm not going to be able to do this in one session this morning. There's too many things that are just coming to my mind about prayer. So it's going to take a couple of sessions to go through this. I want to talk about the priority of prayer, the prerequisite of prayer, the principles for prayer, some promises for prayer, and the procedures for prayer. So that, that's going to take two or three weeks. But prayer is so important that I think it's t- we need to spend some time on it. First of all, we need to recognize that prayer is part of our priesthood. It is part of the priesthood of every single believer. And the role of the priest is to represent man toward God. And in our priesthood, we represent ourselves to God. And we come before His throne of grace, and we have access to His throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, as we've seen in our verse, Hebrews 4.16, which is one of the great uh, promises of prayer for prayer in the Scripture. And in the context of Hebrews chapter 4, as we've been studying on, on Thursday night, we see that this relates, this is part of that warning passage that goes from about 3.6 down through 4.16 that grows out of the first part of, uh, or the last part of Hebrews 2 and the first part of Hebrews 3, which is focusing on the spiritual life, the sanctification, and it is a, an outgrowth, it's an outgrowth of what the writer to Hebrews says about Jesus Christ learning obedience to the things that he suffered in his humanity. And that qualified him to be our high priest. And because he's qualified to be our high priest, then when we go through adversity and suffering and difficulty, then we can come to him because he has been tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. That's the previous verse and therefore because he has gone through every category of adversity we can come boldly before the throne of grace and find mercy and help in time of need that's the point is that we are challenged and encouraged to continuously uh, come before him and this is part of our priesthood and part of our spiritual growth now Prayer itself is not what I identified as we went through five basic spiritual skills. Why not? Because what prayer does is it utilizes many of these 
spiritual skills in prayer. Prayers based on faith. Prayers related to grace orientation. For a prayer to be uh, accurate, for prayer to be heard, it means we have to have doctrine orientation. So you see, prayer itself isn't a spiritual skill. It combines spiritual skills and in prayer so that we come before the Lord and present our praise and our petitions based on uh, faith, based on believing that a prayer that is uh, brought before the Lord in faith, believing we will receive, we, have, we understand grace, we understand doctrine. It pulls all these things together and makes that prayer accurate and uh, more effective. As James says in James 5, the uh, prayer of the righteous, the, the effective or prayer of the righteous man avails much. So prayer is part of our priesthood. And as such, prayer is to be a priority in the believer's life. It is to be near the top of the scale of values in our life as we think about what goes on in our day-to-day planning, our day-to-day events. Prayer is to be a priority. It is our communication lifeline to the Father. And it is to be a priority, just as Bible study is to be a priority. In Bible study, God is speaking to us through His Word. That's how God speaks today. In prayer, we're fulfilling the other side of that communication in talking uh, with the Father. So prayer is to be a priority. And I find that too often today, prayer just somehow slips aside or we have... A, a just a superficial prayer life. And this is true for, for all of us. We just don't give it the attention that Scripture says that we should. And let me give you an example. As we've seen many times, the example for the spiritual life in the church age is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about this a minute. We know that Jesus Christ is our role model. He is our example. Again and again in Scripture, we are told to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is, that he is our example. In his spiritual life, he modeled for us all the principles and procedures that are to be part of our spiritual life. His spiritual life wasn't based on the same principles as Old Testament believers. His spiritual life was based on his relationship with God through Uh, God the Holy Spirit. And prayer was a priority for him. Now think about this a minute. If Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity, united in one person forever, the basic definition of the hypostatic union, and if he is sinless, he's impeccable, he has no sin, he was not born with a sin nature, he didn't receive the imputation of Adam's original sin, he didn't commit any any personal sins. In his deity, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, but he's not relying upon any of his divine attributes for his spiritual life. So if he's in this situation and he in his, in his humanity is praying to God as much as he did and he is sinless and he is true humanity then how much more should we be spending time in prayer when we have a sin nature, we have a, a more intense struggle in some ways with in, in sanctification, our spiritual life, because of indwelling sin? 
how much more is it incumbent upon us to spend time in prayer? So let's just see what the Scripture says about the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his prayer life. Matthew fourteen twenty three, When he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. Now, this happens many times in Scripture where he has been uh, ministering to the crowds. He's been teaching. He's been teaching either the disciples or the multitudes. And he leaves and he gets away by himself to pray. The reason, why does he get away by himself? So that he can avoid those distractions, so that he can uh, relax, so that he has that time alone just to refresh himself and his in his soul and he focuses on prayer and he goes up for a while it's not just okay guys give me about five minutes here I'm going to go over to pray there's a sense here that he is taking several hours to go pray it's not just something quick he he makes a point to to go away uh, by himself Matthew 26 39 this takes place when he is uh, in the getting ready to face the cross. So he is anticipating what's about to happen, and he goes off uh, to us by himself. He leaves the disciples, and he tells them to watch and pray, which is something we'll, a verse we'll get to later on. And he goes a little further into the Garden of Gethsemane, so he's by himself, and he fell on his face and prayed. Now, this is a posture we often see in the Scripture related to prayer. Now, it strikes some of us as being, well, that's just a little too religious, isn't it, to you know, get down on our knees, to fall on our face and pray. But this is something we see again and again in Scripture. In fact, when we run into this, the passages in, in, in Genesis where, like in, we talked about with, with uh, Abraham's faithful servant, that after... after he discovers Rebecca and God reveals her to him. He falls down and worships. I mean, this is the posture of prayer. Now, I'm not saying there's something mystical or magical or significant about getting on your knees or about uh, falling down on your face, but this is a posture we do see over and over and over again in the Scriptures, that there's nothing wrong with this, taking that time to to fit, because what it is doing, it is putting ourselves physically in a position of humility and authority recognition when we are in prayer. Now, I don't know about you, I always feel kind of awkward doing that. I remember the first time I had, uh, I don't know whether it was a professor in seminary or somebody I heard before that talking about this, and I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm going to try that for a while. And I, it just isn't part of my, my culture. It's not part of our culture to do this. It's very much a part of the Middle Eastern culture to be much more uh, uh, outward in their emotional expression. You go to the Middle East, you go to many Mediterranean countries, and it's, they don't think anything of, of uh, raising their hands in prayer. And you hear that in the Scripture where they raise their hands in prayer, and the Jews did that with their palms up. You know, it's not the one-handed thing that you often see today like, I don't want anybody to really see me do this, or I want to make it sure everybody knows that I'm praising God or whatever. But this was more cultural. So I don't think that a lot of this is necessarily prescribed. This isn't a prescription that if you want your prayer to be more effective, you need to uh, prostrate yourself, lie down on the ground, or kneel. 
But there's nothing wrong with that either. That's, that's really what I want to emphasize. And what we see again and again in Scripture is that there is this, this physical posture that goes along with prayer. And I think part of that is during times of significant pressure and prayer, it, it, there's a relationship between uh, the, the adversity that's being faced and the physical posture of the one who is praying. Another passage in Mark. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Principle number one, if you really want to have an effective prayer life, you're going to get up at four in the morning and go pray. A few of you are smiling. You know, I'm not serious there. This is not, you don't derive that principle from the Scripture. However, it's interesting how many morning people there really were in the Scriptures. I know for those of you who are, who are night owls and bats, you just can't understand that. But as I was uh, doing a study on this, how many times in the Psalms it says that the psalmist rose up early in the morning to pray. And the Lord here, early in the morning, long before daylight, he goes out because this is a time when things aren't happening. The phone's not ringing. Uh, people aren't coming by. You, you're not already immersed in the daily schedule. It's a time when, when you can set aside apart from distraction. That's really the principle. Whatever your daily schedule is, when you find that time, whether it's late at night I mean, there's some folks, I'm not one of them, there's some folks that when it gets to be 10 or 11 o'clock at night, they don't really want to go to bed, but the phone's not going to be ringing, the kids are asleep. It's a time when they feel like they, they can concentrate and focus the best. My time is in the morning. I'm, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd be getting up at 5 o'clock every morning. I get up about 5.45, but I'd be getting up about 5 every morning and it's that time between 5 and 10 in the morning that I'm my most effective. And that's I think, is the principle that underlies this, is figure out in terms of your own uh, body clock, when you are at your sharpest, the, when you can focus the best, concentrate the best, and that's a time for you to set aside to listen to the Word, to study the Word, and to pray. And this should be a daily thing for every believer. Whether it's 30 minutes, whether it's only 15 minutes, I know there are times when we get so busy. In fact, I remember back when uh, uh, Dan Ingram was in his first couple of years of seminary, he was saying, well, I don't have time to listen to a whole tape. I said, then listen for 15 minutes. Just get up in the morning, even if it's only 10 minutes. Whatever it is, just grab that time. And you, you've got to drive to school. You've got a full schedule all day, this, that, and the other. We live very busy lives. And sometimes we try to do too much. We try to, try to grab this big chunk of time thinking, oh, I need 45 minutes or I need 30 minutes. Well, sometimes we just can't grab that. So you take 15 minutes and do what you can and make that count, make that a focal point. Jesus gets up a long time before daylight, goes out to a solitary place, there he prays, where there are no distractions, where you can focus on prayer. That was a priority in the Lord's life again and again. Luke 5.16 says, So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. He got away from everything. He made time. There's a principle here. Sometimes in life, 
it's important for you to just take time to maybe take a day and go somewhere. Go to a state park, go to uh, a city park, so go wh- wherever you can, where you're alone, where you're away from your husband, your wife, your kids, work. And if you can, take a half a day or a whole day just so you can focus and be refreshed about whatever's going on in your life. Take time to pray. Take time to read the Scriptures. There was a time when um, I haven't had, had a place or opportunity to do this, but uh, years ago I used to go down to a Camp Penile, and I would spend a couple of days down there and just when nobody else was there, and I would just uh, spend that time reading the Scriptures and, and prayer and thinking about uh, what I was doing, where I was going, where I, what I was teaching, what needed to be done, and just sort of make plans. I tried to do that maybe uh, once a year, twice a year. Now I go to Kiev to do it. That's one of the reasons I like going over there with Jim. I have, like this year, I'm teaching spiritual life, which I've taught three times. The PowerPoints are all in Russian. I've got my notes. I go over there. I teach uh, about three hours every morning and uh, about four other times. But the rest of the time, I don't have anything else going on. I go back to my apartment. There's nobody there. There's no television. There's no telephone. And, and I, I get a tremendous amount done. I read. I spend time praying. And it gives me an opportunity to just kind of focus on what's happened during the last year. What are my... You know, personal goals and objectives spiritually. What are uh, goals for the church? What would I like to do and see happen in the coming years? Where have I just sort of missed it? it, it but it, it's a great opportunity, even though there's a lot of teaching going on and I'm doing a lot while I'm there, because for the most part of every day, I don't have any distractions. It is a tremendous time for me to just, just sort of refocus and be refreshed. So there's different ways that you can do it. There's no set pattern. Not everybody's the same. I remember when I was uh, when I first went to seminary, it seemed like all everybody was giving you set ways to do things, and it was always you know ways that didn't work for me. Whatever works for you to get away and to, and to refocus through just some time reading the scriptures, listening to some tapes, uh, prayer, just. And, it, and I'm not saying this is something that you do every week, but maybe once a year, just to uh, refresh and refocus. Luke 6:12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now that's concentration. That's focus. We'll go on to the next point. Everybody's convicted on that one. All night in prayer. Luke 9.18, it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and asked him, saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? So he's again alone praying. Not just 10-minute prayers, 15-minute prayers, but spending the whole time praying. Now, how do you spend a night praying? Well, one way I think you can do it is just reading through the Psalms and sort of using the Psalms as your own prayers, finding your favorite Psalms. But in order to do that, you have to read through the Psalms on a regular basis, identify Psalms that are personally significant to you, where the Holy Spirit is using in your life, things of that nature. Luke 9.28, now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter and John and James 
and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, here's a picture of corporate prayer. It's not just individual prayer, but let's get together with some other believers and pray. Now, a lot of you are sitting there going, Ah, oh, that right in their scripture it says, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. A great prayer promise. We'll find out that has nothing to do with prayer. That is not a prayer promise. In fact, it's, it's a, it has to do with with a church discipline and the excommunication of a, an unrepentant sinner in the congregation. Where two or three are gathered in my name, those are the two or three who are witnesses against the offending believer. So that verse is not a prayer verse. Acts 2.42, we see the same pattern develop in the New Testament church. At the very beginning, they continued steadfastly and this is the Greek word proskartereo, which means to be steadfast, faithful, uh, to persevere, that where something becomes a weekly, daily habit pattern. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That's what they're focusing on. The way this is structured in the Greek, you don't have four things, you have two things. They focused on doctrine and fellowship. Doctrine and fellowship. That was their priority for the local church. Doctrine and fellowship. What's fellowship? Getting together, having coffee, enjoying a few cookies after church, going out uh, Sunday brunch afterwards with some other believers. No, that's fellowship is defined by the next two uh, phrases. Breaking of bread, which is communion, and prayer. Communion and prayer, the Lord's table and prayer. Who are you having fellowship with in the Lord's table? God. Who are you having fellowship with in prayer? God. See, that's what they were devoting themselves to is the study of the Word and fellowship with God. Study the Word and fellowship with God. This was their priority, and fellowship with God included two things communion and and prayer. Prayer was a function, a priority in the body of Christ, in the meeting, in the corporate meeting of the church. Previous to this, we find out that there were 5,000 people who came to know the Lord on, on the day of Pentecost. So this isn't talking about some small house church group of believers. This is talking about that large group of brand new believers in Jerusalem right after uh, Pentecost. And they're devoted in corporate prayer. That means they come together corporately as believers to pray. Now, this is one of the sad things is that in most churches, when you have prayer meeting, as we do on, on a Tuesday night, you get two or three men show up and you get two or three ladies show up. And this is, this is really sad because this is supposed to be a priority of the body of Christ. It's not the priority just to show up at Bible class at 8 o'clock. Prayer is a priority. The corporate prayer, the meeting of believers in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's an emphasis on the men praying. In verse 8, Paul says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And that, that doesn't mean literally lifting up your hands to pray. That was their cultural way of praying, was to lift up their hands. But the emphasis in that verse is in on the, not on the hands, but on the holy. In other words, they're there in fellowship. That's the, that's the idea there. But the, the main point is that the men 
the men, not the women. And typically in our culture, in Western civilization, going back centuries, when you have prayer meeting, you have four times as many women show up as men. And there's a, a number of books that have been written. One I have that's out of print now called The Feminization of the Church and traces this back all the way back into the Middle Ages that men do not make spiritual things a priority. They're not making it a priority in the local church. They don't make it a priority in the family. And yet the Scripture says it is the males that are primarily to gather together to pray. And they are to pray for the church. They are to pray for all the different things that are on the prayer list, which we put out every week. So this is a priority to pray. It is exactly how the Lord uh, functioned in His life, and the early church set the same set the same standard. Acts six four. But we will give ourselves, and that's that same word, proskartereo. They, they, yeah, the New King James translated, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And this is talking about the apostles. And that was supposed to be a priority for the apostles. And as such, it is analogous to the priority for the pastor of the church is to be devoted to two things. To be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's the priority for the pastoral ministry. It's not weddings and funerals and hospital visits and finding out who the visitors are and going to visit them and all these other things that, that have culturally been brought into pop Christianity as, as things that pastors and ministers are supposed to do. It's really funny sometimes when uh, I'm out talking to unbelievers and some of these are family members and I get comments like, uh, oh, I had this happen not too long ago. Somebody, it was in context of a funeral, somebody died, and there was all the different things that you have to do when somebody dies. And they said, well, you know all about that because you're a pastor. And I thought, well, the only reason I know about it is because my mother died and I had to go through it. But if it weren't for that, I wouldn't know anything about it. I mean, I'm not a social worker. But that is what happens in so many churches is the pastor is basically a social worker, and he helps everybody with all the things that they have to figure out with uh, uh, different problems that come up at the times of death and, and uh, other situations in life. But the priority in the Scripture is the pastors to be devoted, to be steadfast in prayer and the ministry of the Word. Romans 12.2 says we're to be rejoicing in hope, Confident expectation, patient in tribulation or adversity, long-suffering in adversity, and continuing steadfastly in prayer. Same word, to be steadfast in prayer. Uh, Romans um, 15.30, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. It's striving, it's work, it's effort, it's priority. Ephesians 6.18 Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Perseverance, steadfast, it's that ongoing continuous priority for prayer. Colossians 4.2 uses proskartereo again. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant, vigilant in it. With thanksgiving, it is a priority. And then, in conclusion, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing. 
The idea there is it's a continual part of your life, whether it's bullet prayers or whether it is uh, setting aside a regular daily time. This is my time for prayer, time for Bible reading where I'm consistent in it. But prayer is to be a priority in the believer's life. If prayer was a priority in the Lord Jesus Christ's life, as busy as he was with all the things that he had going on, and we know that that's a problem with us. We just get overwhelmed with the details of life. And one issue today that is true for young people as well as old is we we have a crisis of time management, we have a crisis of priority management, and we have a crisis of personal self-discipline. And that, more than anything, gets in the way of us making prayer a priority in our life. But the scriptural mandate is to focus on prayer. So we'll continue in our study next time. We've looked at the priority of prayer. Next time we'll come back and look at more of the details and functions of prayer in terms of prerequisites for prayer and the principles for prayer that we find in the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time to to be reminded of the importance of of prayer in each of our lives, not only personal prayer, private prayer, but also the corporate prayer of the body of Christ, that we should be a church known for being a praying church, people who are devoted to prayer, to continuously giving ourselves to prayer, that prayer is a recognition that we are dependent upon you, that that your grace provides for us. It's a recognition and an expression of our faith and dependence upon you, trusting you to provide for us on a regular basis, trusting you to uh, guide and direct us as a body of believers. Father, we thank you that we have access to you in prayer because Jesus Christ tore that veil in the temple. He opened the path to direct access to you by his work on the cross. There he paid the penalty for our sin. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would take this opportunity to make the gospel clear to them through the Holy Spirit, that every person is born a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the story doesn't end with us being condemned for sin. It goes on to indicate your love and your grace and that you provided a perfect salvation for us that is not dependent in any way upon who we are or what we do. And no matter what we do in life, no matter what sins we may have committed, the issue is not our sin. The issue is Jesus Christ. So right now, right where you sit, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. The instant you put your trust in Christ alone, God the Father and His omniscience knows what you've trusted. And at that instant, you are imputed, you receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You're declared just. You receive eternal life. You're born again. You enter into the family of God, and you can never lose that salvation. This is your opportunity to do so. Father, we pray for us as believers that you challenge us with your word, the importance of prayer to continue steadfastly in prayer, that we might be a people known for our prayer lives, that we depend upon you, express our petitions, our thanks, our love for you, our praise for you in everything that we do. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.